Scripture reading for today comes from Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 20, and Genesis 22, verses 1 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, both, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your, your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. And uh, good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, and it's good to be with you this morning. We are in week two of Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and the arrival of Jesus. And for Advent, we are continuing our sermon series called By Faith, which has been tracing through the Old Testament saints that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. But during Advent, 
uh, what we've been doing is circling back and hitting up the people that we skipped the first time through, the big names in Hebrews 11, the heavy hitters, the people in the Old Testament that God made covenants with. And so last week we talked about Noah and how God promised Noah that he would never flood the earth again and that he was hanging up his bow. And those in the covenant with God, believers, can know that God will never point his bow at them because he has instead pointed his bow at Jesus. This week, we're going to be talking about Abraham again. If you remember, we talked about Abraham once already in this series, along with his wife, Sarah. And I mentioned that Abraham would get one more sermon, and that's where we are today. Abraham is back along with his son, Isaac, this time. And as we dive deeper into their story, we'll have three points, testing, obedience, and provision. So let's begin with our first point, testing. Uh, And this first point will be a little bit longer than the second two, because there's a couple issues that arise that will require more careful explanation. I want to make sure I give them their due, but we'll begin with this first point, testing. Uh, When I was in college working on my computer science degree, I had to take a class called Algorithms. And it was one of the most difficult classes in my entire major. We had to do a lot of math proofs. We had to do a lot of complexity analysis, a lot of heuristics to solve problems. And uh, people who did well in that class would often go on to get PhDs in computer science, or they might work at the top tech companies. And people who did not do well in that class would go on to do things like become pastors. Um, But one of the most difficult things about that class was the tests. You know, it was very normal for a 50% on an exam to be curved up to an A. And so you'd take the exam, turn it in, knowing that you got less than half the available points, just be super depressed. But then you'd later find out that your 40% was actually a B. Not so bad after all. Now, why would my professor design his exams like that? Like I said, often this class was an indicator of someone's ability to get a PhD or acquire a top software development job. And so my professor didn't want to make the exams so easy that top students just consistently got 100%. Because if he did that, then he would never know and they would never know just how much they had learned just how well they could do, what their max potential was. So my professor didn't want this test to just be one more cog in the machine of pumping out bachelor's degrees. He wanted his test to actually tell you something. He wanted his test to actually be an opportunity for you to prove yourself. He wanted his test to demonstrate just how far his students could go. So that's why he made them very difficult. Well, in our passage, God designs an incredibly difficult test. Genesis 22.1, after these things, God tested Abraham. This whole story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac is a story about a test. And of course, Abraham doesn't necessarily know that at the time. We know that as readers of the story. The very first line tells us so. But for Abraham... Uh, He isn't told necessarily up front that he's being tested by God. He's just put into this difficult circumstance. Now, before we get into the specific nature and purpose of Abraham's test, we should talk about the general purpose 
of tests in Scripture. Why does God test his people? Well, one helpful passage on this subject is Deuteronomy 8. Uh, God's testing of the Exodus Israelites is mentioned twice in Deuteronomy 8. In Deuteronomy 8.2, God says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Then in Deuteronomy 8.16, he mentions their testing again and says that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. And so there are a few key aspects of God's tests that we learn from these verses. The first is that God tests his people to humble them. He doesn't test them to pump up their pride. He tests them to humble them which typically happens in one of two ways. Either the one God is testing fails miserably, and they are humbled by the test, or they may pass the test. They may succeed, but they realize that it was only God's grace that they passed the test, and they're humbled. You know, if God tests you, and you feel really good about yourself afterward, and something is off, God tests his people to humble them. Second, God tests his people to know what's in their hearts. But of course, God already knows what is in our hearts. And so what really is happening is God is showing you what's really in your heart through the test. And that might mean that a a test reveals that there's some sort of hardening in your heart or some areas where the grace of the gospel hasn't sunk in yet. Uh, Or, like with my professor's difficult exams, a tough test may reveal to you that your heart actually has embraced the grace of the gospel more and more. Something that would have crushed you years ago, you can now maybe take in stride because of the renewed grace in your heart. So God tests his people to know what is in their hearts. Third, God tests his people to do good to them. You know, God is not testing you because he wants you to fail. He's testing you because he wants you to succeed. You know, God's tests aren't temptations to sin. They're opportunities to abide in him and walk by faith into obedience. You know, scripture is very clear. God does not tempt people to sin. Satan does that. The world does that. Your sinful nature does that to yourself. God does not tempt us to sin. God tests us so that we have an opportunity to turn toward him, to abide in him. So God tests his people for their good. Which brings us back now to Abraham's test. Uh, Abraham's test, then, is meant to humble him. It's meant to know what's in his heart, and it's ultimately for Abraham's good. But it's a tough one. I mean, the toughest test, unimaginably difficult God says in Genesis 22, 2, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Your son, your only son, Isaac, the one that you love, offer him as a burnt offering. Kill him, slaughter him, end his life, Abraham. Now, before we can talk about the specific purpose of this test, 
we have to take a quick aside to understand the, the many problems people have with this passage. You know, the main issue, how could God even ask such a thing? Is it immoral for God to ask this? I mean, is God asking Abraham to murder Isaac? Well, to begin understanding how God could even ask this, I want to point you briefly to a couple chapters in Exodus. Exodus 12 and 13. These are chapters that have a lot of information about how to view the firstborn son, which Isaac was. Remember, Ishmael was an illegitimate son, not the son God promised to Abraham and Sarah, but one born to Hagar when they tried to take matters into their own hands. And so Ishmael is not Abraham's true firstborn son. Isaac is. Isaac is the son of promise by Sarah. But in Exodus 12 and 13, we learn about firstborns through the Passover and the consecration of the firstborns. Do you remember what happens at the Passover? God tells his people that he is going to kill every firstborn son in the land. But if the people will slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorposts, God will pass over that house and not kill the firstborn son. And so what happens is the Israelites put blood on their doorposts, the Egyptians don't, and all the Egyptian firstborns are killed. But this isn't just some random killing. This is a judgment against sin, against all sin, actually. Obviously, the Egyptians are particularly wicked, enslaving the Israelites and refusing to let them go. But the Israelites weren't innocent either. They still needed to be protected from this judgment. They still needed their household to be covered in the blood of a lamb for God to pass over. If they hadn't covered their household in blood, the firstborn would have died too. And this sets a pattern for all future generations. God explains in Exodus 13:1 that they will consecrate to him all the firstborn sons The firstborn son's life will always belong to God. The firstborn son, in a sense, will be a covenant representative of every household before God. And as such, because of Israel's sinfulness, God has every right to demand that each household's sinfulness be paid for by a sacrifice, by a burnt offering of that firstborn son, by forfeiting his life. And that's what happens to all the Egyptian sons. But God also provides other options. Just like in the Passover, the firstborn's life can be spared, it can be redeemed, it can be bought back if the household regularly slaughters a lamb as a substitute offering, just like during the Passover. A firstborn son could also be given to serve at the tabernacle or the temple, or that family could make ransom payments to the ministry of the tabernacle or the temple. But At the end of the day, one way or another, the firstborn son's life belonged to God, and each household owed their firstborn's life to God because of their sinfulness. So back to Abraham. When God asks him to make a burnt offering of Isaac, it's still heartbreaking, but it makes religious sense that God would ask that. It would not have made any sense for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice Sarah, for example. There's no religious significance to offering up one's wife. And so Abraham would have rightly protested or been confused or refused. Uh, But when it's Isaac that God asked for, the firstborn son, Abraham has some religious sense of what that means. Abraham knows that that's something God could ask. The The firstborn's life 
as payment for the sinfulness of Abraham and his household. But don't forget, this is a test. There's more going on here than God just claiming what he already has a right to. He's testing Abraham for a reason. And he's asking for Abraham's son for a reason. Can you guess why? It's because nobody has ever wanted a son more than Abraham. I mean, you know the story. He hoped for years and years and years for a son. And God promised that he would give him one, but Abraham struggled to believe him. He doubted God. He took matters into his own hands at times. He laughed at God. Abraham obsessed over getting a son, and then he finally got one, Isaac. What he had been hoping for for decades. And so you can imagine that if Abraham had to choose between God and Isaac, it might be a close call. You know, Abraham was likely very tempted to turn Isaac into an idol, something that he essentially worshipped, totally oriented his life around, something that he gave his loyalty to at all costs. And so God's test was meant to humble Abraham, to remind Abraham how he and Isaac stacked up relative to God Uh, The test was also to reveal what was in Abraham's heart. The test would force Abraham to reckon with all sorts of thoughts and emotions that would arise within him. It was also for Abraham's good. You know, making an idol out of anything, especially your son, is a path to destroying yourself and your son. So the test was for Abraham's good because holding God in higher regard than everyone else in your life is good for you. It's what's right. God can actually bear to hold that place in your life. Isaac can't for Abraham. And so what about for you? What's, what's your perspective on tests? When you sense that God and his sovereignty is placing you in a difficult circumstance, a test perhaps, what's your perspective? Do you tend to mope or complain or even despair. I can't believe I'm dealing with this. God, how could you do this to me? How could you let this happen to me? Why me? Is that your tendency? Or do you maybe not sense God's involvement at all? You face some difficulty or challenge in your life and God doesn't even come to mind. You just approach it like your agnostic or atheist neighbors would. It's just a part of life, something to white knuckle. Just put your nose to the grindstone, deal with it. Not an inkling of a thought that maybe God puts you in that situation on purpose. Do you sense God's involvement at all? Abraham's story and all scripture testify that God tests his people because he loves them. There is not one minor inconvenience in your life, let alone difficulty, persecution, suffering that you go through that God is not intimately aware of and involved in. God has put you there. God is testing you because he loves you. He wants to use it to humble you. He wants you to see what's going on in your heart, and he wants to use it ultimately for your good. And so how has God been testing you? What has he been using to test you? What's gone on this week, this month, this year that perhaps isn't just one of life's difficulties, but something God has specifically set in place for you, for your good? How will you respond to the test?
let's look at how Abraham responds to his test. That takes us to our second point, obedience. You know, after Abraham received his direction from God, it says that in Genesis 22, 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He rose early in the morning. I don't know about you, I have a hard time rising early in the morning for things I want to do. Abraham's arising early in the morning for something that he's dreading. God tells him what to do, and he gets up early. He gets the supplies he needs, and he sets out to do exactly what God has asked. He obeys. He journeys three days. He builds an altar. He lays wood on it, and then he binds up Isaac. He ties him up. He lays him on the altar on top of the wood, and then he takes his knife, lifts his hand to slaughter his son. Abraham intended to do exactly what God asked of him, to offer his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, as a burnt offering to the Lord. He passes the test, which was not a foregone conclusion. You know, Abraham's history of trusting God is shaky at best. I mean, worse than shaky, often. But here he passes the test. He proves his faith. He proves he isn't some incorrigible sinner unable to grow in his faith. He has grown. He's come a long way to the point that he's viewed in the New Testament as the ultimate Old Testament example of faith because he obeyed and passed this test. And so we have to ask, how was Abraham able to do that? How was Abraham able to obey like this? Where did he find the strength? Where did he find the power? Where did he find the motivation to obey like this? To begin with, Abraham had God's promise. One chapter before this story in Genesis 21, 12, God said to Abraham, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Our Hebrews passage then picks up on that, on that promise, and explains that Abraham was able to obey because he had faith that God would keep his promise. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham had faith that God would keep his promise and that through Isaac, Abraham's line would be extended. Abraham's offspring would come from Isaac's line, which meant that even if Abraham went through with offering him as a sacrifice, God must intend to raise him from the dead because God keeps his promises. You know, I like how the scholar F.F. Bruce puts it. Abraham treated it as God's problem. It was for God and not for Abraham to reconcile his problem or his promise and his command. You know, Abraham was like, it's not my responsibility to figure out how God is going to reconcile his promise of offspring through Isaac with his command to sacrifice Isaac. My responsibility is to obey. God's responsibility is to keep his promise. How's it all going to work out? Not my problem, says Abraham. And isn't that a relief? It's not your problem. It's not your responsibility to figure out how God will keep his promises. Leave that part to God. Your responsibility is to trust him. Your responsibility is to obey him. Your responsibility is to wait on him. 
Leave the how question to God. You're not qualified to answer the how question. That's a key part of Abraham's faith. He left the how up to God. In verse 5 of our passage, we get a glimpse of Abraham's faith. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham didn't know how, but he had faith that he would be returning to the young men with Isaac. And so Abraham obeyed because he left the how to God. Abraham obeyed because he had God's promise. And he had faith that God would keep his promises. He trusted God and obedience followed. I'm sure I've said this before in the sermon series. There's a direct connection between faith and obedience. Obedience flows from faith. They go together. Jesus makes a similar point in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love God, you will keep his commandments. If you trust God, you will keep his commandments. If you have faith in God, you will keep his commandments. Faith and obedience are inextricably linked. Which means when there's some area of your life that is at odds with God's commands, that's a diagnostic, that something is off with your love for God or your trust toward God or your faith in God. And so before you could ever hope to adjust your behavior, your obedience, you need to actually go deeper and address your heart. If something's off with your actions— means that something is off with how you're relating to God. There's a deficiency of love. There's a lack of trust or a lack of faith. So what can be done about that? Well, ultimately, you need God in his grace and mercy to work love, trust, and faith within you by the Holy Spirit. But he has given us some normal means of grace, some ways that God normally works grace into our lives. And so maybe what you need to do is to worship, to ascribe God ultimate value in your life again, to place him back in the top spot, to stir up your love for him in your heart. Maybe what you need is worship. Or maybe You need to search the scriptures and meditate on them in order to remember God's character again. You need to remember maybe that he's trustworthy. You need to remember that he's proven himself to be trustworthy. You need to remember that he's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He is love itself. He's the creator. He made all this, so he knows how it works best. He knows how it's not supposed to work. He has expertise that you don't have. So maybe you need to search the scriptures, meditate on on them, and remember who God is. Remember his character. Or maybe you need to dwell on God's promises and renew your faith in him to keep those promises. You know, maybe loneliness in this life leads you away from God. He promises that he's with you. And that he will never leave you, never forsake you. Or maybe life after death feels hypothetical and and remote compared to the worries of today. God has written your name in the book of life. He will remember you. He will raise you from the dead. He will vindicate you on the last day. 
Or maybe the corruption of this world is just overwhelming and you're tired of resisting it. The new creation, heaven, will be more real than life right now. It'll be the way things are supposed to be. In fact, God is already beginning to make the new creation through you. If you're in Christ, you are a new creation, the first fruits of what will eventually be a universal new creation. So maybe you need to dwell on God's promises and renew your faith in him to keep those promises. And so where is your heart at toward God today? Where is your love for God today? Where is your trust for God today? Where is your faith in God to keep his promises today? You know, which commandments are the hardest for you to obey today? And how could love or trust or faith play a role there? You know, I can guarantee that no commandment in Scripture will be more difficult for you than God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his own son. And yet, God's character, God's trustworthiness, God's promise-keeping were enough for Abraham. And if they were enough for Abraham, then you can know that they'll be enough for you. If, if you seek reasons to love God more, you'll find them. If you seek reasons to trust God more, you'll find them. If you seek reassurance that God will keep his promises, you will find that reassurance. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. If you need reasons for more love, for more trust, for more faith, ask, seek, knock. They'll be given to you. You'll find them. Those doors will be opened for you. Because our God is a God who provides. He gives good gifts. He gives exactly what we need. Our God is a God who provides. And that takes us to our final point, provision. I may have shared this story before, um, but when I was a high school and college student, I would work at Target in the summers. And uh, one of my jobs was the cart attendant, which was a pretty lousy job. All you did was bring in carts all shift and well, there was one time where I was scheduled to work in the second half of the day, but I got a call from the store that the morning cart attendant had called out sick. And they wanted to see if I could come in early. And so I agreed to come in as early as I could, but it wasn't right away. I, uh, the store was going to have to go for a chunk of time without a cart attendant to start the day. So I finally you know, made it in, and I expected to find the parking lot just absolutely flooded with carts. But it wasn't. Uh, it actually looked like a pretty normal amount of carts. And so, you know, I parked my car, I started to walk in, and that's when I noticed that the store manager was out there pushing in carts. That must have been why the lot was not flooded with carts. The manager of the store had been bringing them in. I mean, think about that. The highest-ranking person in the store was doing the job of the lowest-ranking person at the store. He was doing my job. And it actually made a big difference to how I approached that job in the future. You know, anytime I was scheduled to be the card attendant, I knew that I was not being asked to do something that the store manager was not willing to do himself. I knew he was willing to bring in the carts if he had to because I had seen him do it. He wasn't asking me to do something that he was unwilling to do himself. 
Now, one of the most important things to understand about this story with Abraham and Isaac is that God is not asking Abraham to do something that he himself is not willing to do. And that makes all the difference. God is not asking Abraham to provide something that God himself is not willing to provide. And so this starts off with the lamb. If you remember, as Abraham and Isaac are heading out, Isaac asks where the lamb is for the burnt offering. You know, a heartbreaking moment in the story because Isaac doesn't realize that he's the lamb at that point. But Abraham Abraham answers him in verse 8. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Which again is a testimony to Abraham's faith because he believes somehow Isaac will survive all this. Which of course means that there will have to be some sort of substitute offering. And Abraham assumes that God must plan on providing a lamb. And that's exactly what happens. As Abraham and Isaac, has Isaac bound to the altar and a knife raised in his hand to slaughter him, an angel of the Lord calls to stop him. In verses 11 through 14, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord is not asking Abraham to provide something that he is not willing to provide himself. And so he provides a ram a male lamb, for the offering. And Isaac's life is spared. But of course, the lamb that God provides as a substitute for Isaac is a shadow of something much better. And just like Abraham in faith said God will provide for himself the lamb, we also, in this season of Advent, say it with him. God will provide for himself the lamb. That's what Advent is all about waiting, longing, hoping for, trusting in, having faith that God will provide a lamb. And he has in Jesus. So John the Baptist says, John one twenty nine, when he sees Jesus, John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God has provided the ultimate lamb. The lamb God provided, Abraham, was only a substitute for one person, Isaac. The lamb that God has provided us, Jesus, is a substitute for all who believe. He's a substitute for you. The lamb that God provided Abraham for Isaac was only good temporarily. You know, they would eventually need to make more offerings, more and more burnt offerings. The lamb that God has provided us, Jesus, has died on the cross and resurrected, which means that the lamb has atoned for your sins once and for all. No more sacrifices, no more burnt offerings need to be made. You know, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a, a lamb before its shearers, the lamb of God did not open his mouth because he went to the cross willingly. God did not ask Abraham, and he's never asked you to do something that he himself was not willing to do and more. Just like God asked Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, whom he loves, and sacrifice him, God himself has taken his only begotten son, Jesus, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased, and sacrificed him. Like Isaac carried the wood for his own burnt offering up the mountain, Jesus carried a wooden cross for his offering up the mountain. But for Abraham and Isaac, 
When Isaac was bound to the altar and Abraham had a knife raised, a voice called out from heaven to stop him. When Jesus was bound to the cross, no voice called out from heaven to stop it. Instead, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And unlike Isaac, whose life was spared, unlike you, whose life has been spared, Jesus' life was not spared. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The sins of God's household were put on the firstborn son, on our older brother, on Jesus, and he took them to the cross, paid for them in full, which we know because God raised him from the dead and he ascended up into heaven and he will come again. That's who we anticipate in Advent. The Lamb of God, his only begotten Son, Jesus, the one who was born to die as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. God has never asked you to do something that he was not willing to do himself. God has never asked you to provide something that he was not willing to provide himself and more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you, Lord. For your Son, the Lamb of God, a sacrifice for our sin. Father, we admit that so often the circumstances of this life, we're blind to how they're tests that are for our good, that are meant to humble us, that will reveal what's in our hearts. Father, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see how our circumstances, how difficulties are ultimately meant to bring us back to you. They're meant to reveal what's in our hearts. They're opportunities to abide in you and obey. So, Father, we pray that your character, your love for us, your promises become more and more real to us. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have provided for us, but ultimately for providing the most precious thing of all, your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.